Hey, this is Sam Lushchak with Absolute EHS, and I'm here today with Dea down in New Mexico. Hey, Dea, how are you? Hi, great. Great. Um, so before we dive in, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is, full name is Dea Singh Khalsa, and I um, am retired from a career in uh, business, mostly in the government security business. Uh, and now I do a lot of uh, work on boards of both for-profit and non-profit organizations. And um, uh, other than my, you know, what I like to do in my personal life, that's most of my work time. Uh, and those boards include the um, major healthcare system in the region that I live in, which is northern New Mexico, including Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, and then the rest of Northern Mexico is very rural, uh, Hispanic, and I am a board member of uh, Ancorum uh, St. Vincent Foundation, which is a uh, charitable foundation that owns half of the health system, and I'm also on the board of Christus St. Vincent Health System, which is the health system itself, which is also partly owned by Christus Healthcare, a large Dallas, Texas-based hospital owner, own, uh, owning conglomerate. Um, not really a conglomerate, but they own about 75 hospitals, including some in Mexico and Chile, but mostly in Texas and the states surrounding Texas. Um, so, uh, um, I have uh, been doing that for a little over two years and have really learned a lot about how kind of big healthcare works and how community health works and uh, uh, a lot about all those things. Uh, I'm also on the board of uh, a for-profit uh, company that owns businesses in the uh, um health products industry and the home building industry and other industries. And then a couple of other nonprofits that are community service type nonprofits trying to help people to build assets, low income families to be able to do better financially. Sounds like quite a retirement plan. It leaves me plenty of time. So mm -hmm. I like it so far. How did you go from security to healthcare? Well, I um, another role that I have is as the head of public affairs and government affairs for the religious organization that I belong to here, which is the Sikh community of New Mexico. And so I've had a long, you know, 30 some years being involved with um, uh, local politics, local government, kind of acting as a, uh, uh, as a public affairs director, as kind of a lobbyist for our Sikh community. So um, I've met lots and lots of people from that, had a lot of community involvement. And um, that's really what led to me being uh, asked to join these healthcare boards, a good friend who was a former chairman of the Democratic Party in New Mexico, 
was the chairman of that board and asked. And when his term was up, he asked me if I would take his seat. And uh, so that's how I got on that board. Other boards I've joined, I've been asked to join just from getting to know the people there. And then the um, the for-profit board that I'm on is actually affiliated with the Sikh community. And uh, in my career, I I helped uh, grow a and run a company that was also part of that affiliated group. So that's how I ended up on this other board. That's awesome. So you've been on this healthcare board for about two years, which means you were there before COVID hit. So what right. the normal, what was it all like before COVID, either personal or on the board or anything else you've been doing? Well, it, you know, it's very interesting because it's a, it's a nonprofit healthcare organization, Catholic affiliated with a, that's been around Santa, that's been in Santa Fe for 155 years, going back to to uh, a small group of Catholic sisters who came out to New Mexico from Pennsylvania uh, at, at the request of the community to set up a healthcare organization uh, facility there where there was none, which was kind of a common thing that happened back in the mid 19th century. And um, so it's a nonprofit organization, but it's also to, to be successful and serve a community in in the modern healthcare system, which is an enormous, enormous bureaucracy, an enormous financial system. You know, the the U.S. healthcare system uh, was 3.7 trillion dollars in 2020, and to be and this uh, health uh, system in northern New Mexico is a major health system with. Um, 2,500 employees and serving uh, uh, over 100,000 um, patients. So uh, it was, you know, I had to learn a lot about just how that all works. I'd been involved in some healthcare before. I was on the board of the regional uh, HIV AIDS healthcare organization uh, and, you know, got to understand some of it. But it's really interesting to learn about how you can try to serve your community and serve your patients while meeting the requirements and and being successful in that giant healthcare system that exists. So that's been really interesting. The organization has done really well. I got involved at a very good time because it had done a tremendous amount. Uh, the the that 155 year old healthcare system sold half of itself about 12 years ago to Christus Health out of Dallas because and that was a function of of this national healthcare bureaucracy becoming so big so burdened with requirements that it's very very difficult for a small or medium-sized standalone hospital and health system to survive on its own anymore. So they found a partner, became 50-50 partners, and spent about the next six or seven years really building the quality and, uh, and service that they were providing. 
to the community. So when I got involved, they be, they had become gone from a from maybe a mediocre healthcare provider to a very very high quality healthcare provider with a tremendous uh, leader and just continually developing more resources, um, uh, more services, and more and reinvesting in their system. So that was really exciting to be part of that. And I've seen them continue to grow the quality of what they do. Uh, and yeah, they, they are a, what I'd call a small to medium sized health system, a hospital with 250 beds, about 45 clinics outside the hospital that do everything from family practice to surgeries, to, uh, orthopedics, a, a significant cancer center uh, that serves the whole region. Um, and it was thriving and continuing to grow before COVID. So let's get to how you first heard about COVID down there in New Mexico. I don't think there's anything unique about that. Um, uh, just, you know, hearing about it the same way everyone did. Obviously, in February of 2020, trying to start to understand what it might be and if it would be anything, if it would just be another SARS that didn't really impact the general population much. Uh, and where most, where most of us didn't understand what a potentially disastrous pandemic that could have been, but the virus ended up being controlled and disappearing. But um, you know, having a, getting a little insight from the healthcare system, but really they, they weren't doing a lot in terms of looking at it a year, January or, or early February, 2020, and then just starting to learn about it along with the rest of the country and the world. And, you know, I think the fact that our federal government wasn't very transparent during that period made it harder to understand what was going to happen. And then just the shock of, uh, of, econo of the economy being shut down, of the personal measures that had to be taken uh, to deal with this. I don't think almost anyone who wasn't involved in public health had experienced anything like that or um, had any idea what that might mean. So it was quite a shock in early March to realize what we were dealing with and to try to start to educate yourself about what course this might take and what it might mean for everybody. So working on a, a board of such a large healthcare system, do you think you guys were ahead of the curve or how, how did things change and adapt given the pandemic? Um, and just uh, let me know if you start to hear any deterioration in my audio because I just got a, a, a noise on my uh, AirPods. Okay. And I was just, I I've been on them for like two and a half hours and they, they might start dying and I'll just switch to speaker if they okay. do. Um, ask that again. <laughs> um, given that you're working in such a large healthcare system on the board, how did things change and how did you all have to adapt given just the, the vastness of what you were working on? 
Well, there were there have been a few phases to that, and you know the first one was the health system dealing with the potential economic impact and community health impact. So, look, um, there were they uh, immediately all uh, um, a lot of their volume just froze up. So people weren't. Uh, people were just staying home and not taking care of their potential healthcare needs. So the population of patients at the hospital dried up, went down 70%. The emergency room went down even more than that. Um, the, they had to do some layoffs, which they hadn't done in a long, long time. And they were all done on a temporary basis and as compassionately as possible, everyone kept their health care, kept their uh, benefits of all kinds. Um, uh, they uh, were not able to do outpatient, primarily any outpatient surgeries unless they were really practically life-threatening uh, or would have led to really serious uh, consequences if that surgery didn't happen, which is a big profit center for any health system. Uh, and so that was really the first phase. And then the process of getting ready for what might happen in terms of, of COVID care, which was a total, total unknown at the beginning. I mean, most of the, you know, most of the U.S. epidemic pandemic was in uh, most of the news about it was coming from New York City and other big cities and rates were very low in a place like northern New Mexico. Um, so that was kind of the first phase, all of that happening, uh, getting prepared for uh, COVID patients, setting up facilities for them, um, dealing with uh, shifting personnel, uh, how um, training doctors and nurses who might be in other areas to be able to be part of the team that could deal with COVID patients. Uh, all of those things were the first wave. And then COVID patients started coming in. And so Krista St. Vincent became a key partner with the state uh, uh, health department in New Mexico to deal with issues like, uh, because one thing that was happening in New Mexico almost immediately was that the Native American community, especially in Northwestern New Mexico, where the giant Navajo reservation is, uh, was being just battered almost right from the beginning by, the, uh, by coronavirus infections and they couldn't control them, and they didn't have the resources to treat the patients. So that was one of the first group of patients who came into Krista St. Vincent from outside their system, and they came in very sick, uh, in some cases already on respirators and others needing them. And the state, uh, the state hospitals worked together under the state health department to work out where patients would go 
what if uh, hospitals were over uh, couldn't handle anymore or from Native American from the Indian health system, which could couldn't handle much. And um, so through the spring, a lot that there was a lot of that going on. And, um, you know, uh, my hospital system ended up with higher death rates than average across the country because they had so many patients coming in already critically ill from outside their health system. So it didn't reflect what they were doing, but it reflected the mix of patients that they, of COVID patients they were getting. And then by about, even in, even in April, but especially even starting in May, volume started to rebound. Uh, you know, there was a great concern that people were skipping their regular checkups or were not going to their family practice physician despite being ill or having concerns. So one thing that happens in that when that's going on is that people don't get diagnosed um, or, or they don't get tested for symptoms or, or things a doctor might find that, uh, that really need to be checked out for possible cancer would be the largest thing. Uh, heart conditions, all of that just uh, get delayed and can really lead to people not getting the kind of outcomes they could have gotten if they had had those things diagnosed earlier. So all of that was a concern. They they immediately started putting telehealth together um, and seeing hundreds or thousands of patients digitally. Um, they started out trying to use Zoom and that didn't go well with the patient population. You know, a lot of the patient, a lot of patients in a health system are either very elderly and poor in Northern New Mexico. Uh, that's, you know, that's the bulk of where our healthcare dollars go is into elderly patients, end of life situations. And with lower income, uh, patients, you have lack of broadband, lack of um, access to computers or iPads. So the Zoom thing didn't work very well. They then switched to a um, platform that, that their IT system, which is called Epic, which is one of the three or four giant healthcare IT systems in the country had, and it was a lot simpler and has worked a lot better. And so the volumes really started to come back up in May and, and that continued June, July into the summer until in most, in many cases, volumes got into the range that they were before COVID. Most have not rebounded to that point. And the one that stayed the lowest is emergency rooms. People just didn't want to be in the emergency room uh, around a lot of other sick people. And that has not re that has only rebounded to about 50%, which is very low. And, um, Krista St. Vincent's even closed a second emergency room that they had set up a few years ago. 
and probably will not reopen it. Uh, This was an off-campus from their hospital emergency room in another part of town. And that's the major service that has come back the least. But um, but, uh, um, surgery, uh, day surgery, um, and hospital, other kinds of hospital and clinic work has rebounded pretty well. And because um, the government came in to try to make sure that hospitals and health systems didn't take a huge hit from COVID that could start to in itself become a big public health disaster, uh, they supplemented a lot of things like medic- they, they temporarily increased Medicaid rates for the hospitals and health systems same with Medicare rates in some cases. They provided some uh, one-time payments to health systems and hospitals. Because of all of that, this health system was able to maintain its financial stability and its profitability. And even with with a nonprofit hospital system, health system, profitability is critically important because of the 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 size of the reinvestment that goes into health systems every year, um, equipment, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, surgical and and other kind and testing equipment, um, and just keeping the whole facility modern and going are multi million dollar investments every year, even in a in a health system this size. And if they start to break even or lose money, the whole quality of healthcare just starts to go down. So it worked out financially and um, the surge from the spring uh, settled down. The Native American communities got their uh, rates under control. And you know, then the new surge came in the fall and New Mexico started to get hit really hard in late October, early November. Number of daily cases went from 300 to 3,000 in New Mexico. Two, 3,000 was the peak. And so, you know, the concern then became like everyone has seen in other parts of the country, um, ICU beds, uh, COVID beds, uh, equipment, PPE, all that became a concern again. And this health system was able to stay just below the crisis level in all those areas. Uh, But November, early December were really difficult. And it put it, just like we've heard everywhere, it put a tremendous stress onto the medical staff and um, risks that care would have to be rationed in some way for other patients. But it never quite got to that point. And now the rates have come down a lot. So New Mexico's now seeing under a thousand infections a day, down from an average of 2000 or more in November and early December. So that's kind of been the cycle of the whole thing. And now we're into the vaccination cycle. Well, hold so, on. before we get to vaccines, I want to clarify, okay. you, you, had made a, you had made a comment about the Native American healthcare system um, being overwhelmed, not many of us, myself included, um, know if there's a large difference between 
the Native Americans uh, healthcare system or what they have access to or um, can, can you yeah, kind of and elaborate I'm not, a bit on I'm not that? an expert. I'm not an expert on it, but it's almost a parallel to veteran healthcare. They have, there's a whole separate health system for, they call it the Indian Health Service. And it's almost like the veteran administration. They have a whole healthcare system, uh, which is not the quality of a high quality community health system okay. and has a lot of deficiencies and everything about, you know, it's part of the, um, uh, whatever, you know, it's part of the whole system of the, of government support for native communities, which is a part of the department of the interior and is, um, and, uh, there have always been a tremendous amount of distrust between the native communities and the federal government, including the Indian Health Service. Uh, these things go back, you know, a long, long way to where there was tremendous discrimination and underservice uh, and of of the um, uh, of native communities, just like in education, where they tried to wipe out the native cultures and languages through the education system they were providing, there were similar things going on in healthcare. And so it was just not capable of responding to a high um, COVID infection rate, which is what you got get in a uh, native community, which is low income um, living, large families living together, extended families living together, all the, all the things that would lead to high infection rates. Uh, and then they were unable to respond effectively to it. So that is kind of what I know about it. Okay. Another and, thing you, oh, you know, go on. So I was just going to say that the ability for them to move patients to, uh, Albuquerque or Santa Fe was very, very important during that early phase. That's good. Uh, another thing you mentioned was the closing of a satellite ER. Um, and prior to you joining that hospital board, you had mentioned that it was two kind of smaller hospitals coming together into a 50-50. Um, from what you see, and obviously this would just be a personal projection, do you think that many other hospitals or med uh, healthcare systems are in a similar position? Are we in danger of losing some of our healthcare facilities and satellite services? Or do you think more hospitals are gonna to come together to do more of a 50-50 split to make sure that they stay above water financially? Well, that's interesting you ask that because this morning I was on a partners meeting between Christus Health and, uh, and Corum, the, the foundation that owns half of Christus St. Vincent in Santa Fe. So the way, it, it's set up as there's Christa St. Vincent, which is the Santa Fe based Northern New Mexico health system. And that's owned half by Christus Healthcare, which is a large hospital, uh, a large owner of 75 hospitals based in Dallas, Texas, and half owned locally. So Christus St. Vincent has a lot of resources uh, to deal with. What's happened in Santa Fe is two years ago, a, a 
pretty large Albuquerque-based hospital and healthcare system, opened a hospital in Santa Fe. That's the first uh, time in 155 years that there's been a second hospital in Santa Fe. And at this, around the same time, Krista St. Vincent had opened a standalone emergency room in the same area of town where this other health system, Presbyterian Health System, had opened their hospital and their emergency room. And it was an effort to remain relevant for that community, to not lose too much business to Presbyterian, and to kind of see what kind of volume there would be down there. Christus St. Vincent has some clinics down there, but didn't have an emergency room. But in this meeting I was in this morning, the CFO of Christus Healthcare in Dallas had just been in a meeting, a national emergency room uh, organization meeting. And he let us know that the people in that meeting who are part of very large healthcare organizations we're saying that they don't think that emergency room services will ever be the same after COVID. He doesn't think they'll ever come back to the same level, that people will be avoiding settings like that where a lot of sick people are in a waiting room or are come in at random, that people aren't going to want to go back to that model if they can avoid it. And that emergency rooms are going to have to adapt to lower volumes permanently. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know exactly what that means for overall uh, emergency care availability. Uh, obviously, we're, we all know that a lot of urgent care centers have opened um, across the country in the last 10 to 15 years uh, to kind of so that everyone doesn't have to go to an emergency room to get immediate health care and avoid trying to make an appointment for something that they need uh, fast response to. And so that also puts pressure on emergency room volume. And um, I think we're, you know, it, it's yet to be determined what the emergency health care picture is going to look like in the future. But if people don't want to go there, they're going to find other ways to deal with things. They won't go as easily. Um, healthcare systems have all, by and large, created access for their patients. And this has really happened at Christa St. Vincent only over the last three years or so, have created much better uh, digital access to their doctors, to getting responses from their family practice clinics, to get, to being able to do get set up a telehealth appointment on a short notice. So there are more options to emergency room now. And so, yes, that's going to be maybe a permanent change in the, in the cycle of health delivery uh, for, um, health systems, a lot of hospital admissions traditionally have come through the emergency room. And hospital admissions is what really keeps health systems in business. That's where they make their profits and that's where they are able to support other parts of their system that maybe is not profitable. 
And so now that's going to change. And exactly what that'll look like, these people weren't sure. But they're pretty much agreeing that emergency room volume isn't going to come back. Whether it'll come back to 60%, 75%, 80%, those are still numbers that fundamentally will change the economics of emergency care. So we'll have to see what happens there. Okay. All right. So, uh, yes. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Okay, I've got you on speaker now. My AirPods officially died. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, all right, I, I did, uh, I hate doing it, but I did cut you off. You were starting to transition into discussing how yep. the vaccines are, uh, are coming in, being distributed, and and all that fun stuff. So please continue. Yes, so obviously that's the bright light of the COVID pandemic is the uh, existence of approved vaccines. And Krista St. Vincent was the first healthcare organization in New Mexico to receive a vaccine shipment and to start delivering vaccines. They started like a lot of areas with their healthcare workers. And that was the first phase. They then moved to people who have been, who are on their patient database in some way and are 75 and older. That's the group that they're now vaccinating. And once they can get through that group, they'll move to a broader group that includes anyone over 16 with underlying conditions and other elements. But they've told us that, you know, they've certainly run into the same shortage of vaccines that everyone else has. They're not getting the size deliveries that they could be delivering to patients. Um, the process is taking longer than everyone had hoped. And they've told us it's gonna take months and months to get all the way down to adults with no underlying conditions and get through that giant group. We're looking at, you know, months and months. They're not, they're trying not, they're not really pinpointing how many months, but they're not talking about two or three. They're talking about summer, fall right. to really get to those herd immunity levels. Uh, even in a relative, you know, this is a relatively easy area to deliver vaccinations to because it's the whole population of their service area is maybe 150 to 200,000. Santa Fe is a small city of 75,000 and, you know, it's, it, it's manageable, but, um, but uh, definitely they're, dealing with the same thing of shipments being less than they had hoped, somewhat unpredictable, and trying to, you know, make the vaccine available. Uh, you know, they're not dealing with the uh, uh, extended care or nursing home community that's being done by 
the pharmacies and but um and and chris st vincent is doing a great job of setting up the process and getting people in and out safely but um going to be a long slow process hopefully the pace will pick up hopefully yeah you had mentioned um with the indian healthcare system serving the native american population and all the distrust do you happen to have any insight into how vaccine distribution is happening within that healthcare system? Not yet. I, I haven't heard them. I've been in a lot of Q&A with our system, but I haven't heard them answer that question. Okay. So I can find out for you and let you know. <laughs> well, I'm always curious. Um, so yeah. uh, I guess talking about vaccinations, let's get to your vaccine, if you don't mind. So... Sure. I mean, I, I was very lucky that as a board member, they offered me and my wife vaccinations. Um, but I have an interesting relationship to the vaccination health-wise, which is that, as you may know, one of the only, you call it a side effect, but it's probably not a side effect, that was found in the um, testing of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which of course are very, very similar, biologically similar. Uh, and the total phase three testing for those two vaccines was 70,000 people. And 12 of those 70,000 within a few weeks of getting vaccinated developed Bell's palsy. And as you probably know Bell's palsy is a paralysis of one side of your face, the muscles in one side of your face. Um, and that is a condition, not Bell's palsy, but I had that same paralysis of one side of my face two and a half years ago when I had a rare form of shingles, uh, which is called, uh, I can never remember the name of that rare form of shingles, Ramsey Hunt syndrome or illness, which where the, where the shingles, instead of creating the usual painful blisters around your chest, attacks your trigeminal nerve, which is, you probably know what that is, but most people don't. It's uh but it's the nerve that controls those muscles in the side of your face. And it's around, it's around the back of your ear. And so the shingles attacks that nerve and then you end up with the same symptoms as Bell's palsy. So your, my, your mouth droop, you don't have control of your mouth and your eye, which are the obviously important parts of that side of your face. And when I found out that these vaccines uh, create, may have have a side effect of Bell's palsy. I had to hesitate and try to find out if I might be susceptible to that. So first of all, the general belief is that it's not a side effect because those, that number of, what did I say, eight, no, 12 people out of 70,000 is pretty much the same number who out of a random 70,000 people would get Bell's palsy during that period of time uh, of the testing. But I didn't quite know exactly what that meant. 
theoretically, it means that it's a coincidence that 12 of those 70,000 got Bell's palsy and that it had nothing to do with the vaccine. But there's no way for them to prove that. Right. So I had to just live with that fact. And the second is that that's a very, very small number for a side effect. Uh, for instance, a much larger number had some type of allergic reaction. But it's a large enough number that they can't say absolutely definitively that it's not a side effect. So I talked to four doctors. I did all the research I could online. None of it was definitive, but the doctors all advised me that they didn't think that I had to worry about it. And so after about three weeks after being offered the vaccine, I decided to go ahead and get it. And so we got our first shots about three weeks ago, and we get our follow-up next week. Which one did you get? We got the Pfizer, and that's the only one they've been getting in uh, Santa Fe. And if you don't mind, um, can you give us a, either an age or an age range and comorbidities or allergies, people, the things that other people might also be worried about? Yeah, uh, I turned 70 just before I got the vaccine. And um, I don't really have any other risk factors okay. that I know of. So, and neither did my wife. So, um, and she's uh, a little younger than me. So uh, we uh, got the vaccine the shot was very painless for me. The arm got very, very sore the next day for about 24 hours or later that day. We got the shot in the late morning and by, by that night, it really hurt to move my arm around. That only lasted about 24 hours. I was really tired that afternoon and night and then felt fine the next day. Um, my wife got tired the next day and was tired for most of that day. And that's pretty much, that's the extent of the reactions that we had to it. Did you take anything for the pain or do anything? I didn't. Um, she may have taken an ibuprofen. I didn't take anything. And it was, you know, it was just that arm soreness, but you know, it's really noticeable. It's not just that your arm hurts a little. It's uh, you know, like you don't, you want, you have to be really careful with it. You don't want to roll over on it while you're sleeping, but um, it only lasted 24 hours. That's not so bad. So um, nobody can see you, but you are smiling. You, you pass all the tests for um, any kind of face droopage. You look very perfect. So far, you know, I still, <laughs> I got to go through the whole process, uh, but I'm pretty optimistic about it. That's great. Um, so maybe we'll follow up with you a few weeks after your second dose, if you don't mind. Feel free to. In general, people are saying that the second dose of the Pfizer has creates more of a reaction than the first. And I've spoken to several people who 
just really didn't feel well for from one to three days yeah. from the second dose. So, but others who have others who were absolutely fine and had almost no reaction. So just have to see. Yeah, that's great. So before I let you go, because I've taken up a bunch of your time, is there anything else you uh, wanted to talk about that we didn't get to or a question that you're surprised I didn't ask or just something that you wish somebody would ask you that you'd like to share? Well, I'll share one interesting aspect that I know about from what I do, which is kind of the very, very, very um, diverse effect that COVID has had on the economy, uh, where it has been a, a tremendous crushing blow to large parts of the economy and a huge benefit to other parts of the economy. I think everyone knows that's the case. Um, I'm involved in a specific uh, aspect of that because one of the companies that the board, that the organization I'm on the board of owns is a, um, an herbal tea company that is one of the leading herbal tea companies in the world. And COVID was a tremendous uh, multi increaser of business for that company. So the way, because of the way primarily their sales are through grocery stores, uh, both, uh, both mass market, both supermarkets and natural food stores. And they're in most of the, their products are sold in most of the grocery stores in the United States and all the and all the natural food stores and many of the grocery stores in Europe. And what grocery stores were doing, first of all, when eating uh, in normal times, people spend about 40% of their food dollars eating out in some way. And so all of a sudden that was gone and grocery stores were picking up 100%, which was just an enormous surge of business for them and continues today to a large extent. And so they immediately started increasing their orders to their key supplier, to their key food suppliers and stockpiling as much as they could. And so this herbal tea company all of a sudden and actually in what is traditionally their slow season, because when you're an herbal tea company, you have a disproportional amount of your sales are during winter, mm -hmm. fall, winter, early spring. So in March, your business slows down considerably. And instead of that happening, they just had this huge surge in orders, which leveled off some in the summer, but remained above normal and has through the whole year. And they were, they were fortunate because they had just moved into a new factory in the US last year. And they were able to meet these orders, which a lot of their competitors couldn't. Um, and their, their competitors still did well, but they were able to meet all the product that that their customers wanted to stockpile and wanted to have. So they just did incredibly well. 
And, you know, in addition to that, to, to that, they are, they're an herbal food, an herbal tea company that specializes in what they call functional teas, teas that have a positive health effect in one way or another. It might be for your digestion, for sleeping, but one of the positive health effects is for immunity, strengthens your immune system. So that those products just had an even bigger surge uh, because uh, people wanted to have a strong immune system with COVID out th- with the coronavirus out there. So in every way, it just had a tremendous uh, um, boost to their business, unexpected, obviously. And I've gotten to see that the numbers and what exactly that led to. So that was pretty has been pretty interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, I've noticed I'm not usually that big of a tea drinker, but I am definitely drinking more tea. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, you and millions and millions of people. So, um, uh, you know, this company has their product in about 6% of American households. And that went up by over 1% in 2020. So, you know, and what usually once people get exposed to a product like that, they keep, it becomes part of what they want to have. So it's a very popular product that makes people feel good. Uh, and um, so, you know, who, who knew, but, you know, COVID just provided a boost for this company that'll probably be permanent. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dea. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. Are you going to, be telling everyone 